This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 15, and the quote of the day is from Norman Vincent Peale, who said, the trouble with most of us is that we would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini, and we're coming at you with information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I am living it up right now. I'm in Southern California. I uh, just got back from the NAM show today, and uh, great time as usual. Got to see a lot of great people. Got some footage. Uh, talked to a bunch of people that are going to be on the show coming up soon. Talked to Chris Daddy Dave. Talked to... Um, just a bunch of people I don't want to tell you yet. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag, but uh, definitely got a bunch of good interviews coming up. And uh, But this is an interview that I did about two weeks ago with John DeChristopher. John is a person that has been in the industry for years and years, and he is the former vice president of Zildjian Symbols. I think you guys have heard of that company probably. And uh, yeah, I had a chance to talk to John, and we had a little Skype call, uh, like I said, about two weeks ago, and it was great to hear the other side of the of the story. So there's a lot of knowledge in this interview about the business and about endorsements and how all that works and what to expect, what not to expect, and just a ton of, of industry know-how and information that John shares in this interview. It's a, it's a great interview from somebody that is like I said, been in this industry for years and, uh, you know, he signed Ringo and Charlie Watts and all these other people and his close personal friends with a lot of really influential drummers. And he is an influential person himself in the area of artist relations. And like I said, running the Zildjian symbol company. So without any more delay and me yapping, here is the one and only John DeChristopher. Check it out. John, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Nick. It's nice to be here. Great to meet you. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I always, when we start the interview, I always ask people, you know, how they got started, how they fell in love with the drums. Uh, it's always interesting to hear the backstory because it's always something different. So, so what's your story? How did you get involved? Um, well, I think like a lot of, a lot of people, um, probably my age, it was... Bands like the Beatles, all British bands that from the '60s. Um, I was I was too young to see the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, but I have memories of like years after that of like the Beatles on TV and the Rolling Stones and and actually you know the Monkees TV show which came out in 1966. I was six years old and and I actually remember that as being a big kind of influence on me because. A lot of us at that time didn't know that they weren't playing their instruments. So as far as we knew, you know, Mickey Dolenz was playing the drums. And, and uh, you know, it was all that sort of that era of music that um, kind of brought me to the point when I was about 12 years old where I really wanted to, like, get serious about playing the drums. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, yeah, it was all that music from that period. Okay. So how, so how did you get into uh, starting to play and who did you study with and when well, you were younger? I started, I was self-taught. Um, I just started playing with a, with a pair of sticks and uh, later a practice pad, but an, initially literally a pair of sticks like on anything that I could hit. Right. Um, Annoying as many people as you could in the process. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a paper route and I used to actually carry the sticks in my back pocket and I'd be either walking or on my bike and I'd stop and I'd, 
I'd like actually like tap on mailboxes and, and, uh, you know, railings to people's, you know, there's stairways and, and nice. uh, all the annoying stuff you can think of. And, and right. eventually I got a, my, my best friend, uh, next door neighbor, Mike Mahoney gave me an old snare drum. Mm-hmm. So I had that for a few months and I actually used to sit there and play in the snare drum and I'd air drum along to music, you know, records and stuff. And uh, got my first drum set when I was 12 years old. And again, self-taught and kind of just learned to play by listening to records, you know? Right, right. And that's a lot of people uh, underestimate the value of, of playing along with records, you know, because there's, there's all these great records that are out there and you can learn all these different styles. But unless you really hear it in context with these great records, I don't think it really translates as well. Absolutely. And, and you know, and for me, I mean, I found that playing along um, – literally sitting like on on the bed in my sister's bedroom and playing along to like Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and Beatles eight tracks and then sitting down behind the drums and playing. I mean, I knew what they were playing, but as you know, as a drummer too, when you actually sit down and try to physically execute those things, that's where it really, that was the challenging part for me was, you know, I knew there was a fill coming up at this spot and I knew I had an idea of what John Bonham was playing with his bass drum, but to sit down behind the kit when I finally got a drum kit and try to play it, that's what really made it fun because then I could really sit there and work at it and play those songs and go, okay, he's playing a triplet with his foot. All right. 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 See if I can do this, you know? Right. And trying yeah. to figure out the feel as well, you know? Oh, yeah. Once you get the physical stuff down, then it's like, oh, wait, now I got to make it sound good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, see, you're, you're ahead of me on that because it, it took me, you know, as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, it took me really a couple of years to kind of really understand that, the difference. And, and I think for a lot of like, young kids starting out, they're not thinking about the feel as much as they probably should be. I certainly wasn't. And it wasn't until a little later on and I'd, I'd come back and listen to these songs and go, yeah, I, 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 I got to make it feel like that. It's not, it doesn't, I'm playing this Beatles song, but it doesn't feel like Ringo's feel or Charlie's feel, you know? Right. And and that's you're right. That's when you get to that other plateau, that other level of like understanding it. Um, but I, I will say that I did eventually take some lessons from a friend of mine that was um, had studied with later on with Alan Dawson, and he was a great drummer that I knew in school that really sort of helped me guide me along because he was always this very well studied player that saw me just kind of struggling to sort of do certain things, and right. he gave me the basics on reading. He was the, actually the um, this guy's name is Fred Klein, and when he saw the way I held my sticks, I play left-handed, but I was playing a right-handed kit. And he said, "Wait a minute, you you hold your right stick, you know, traditional, and your left stick." And and I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, you're left-handed. You need to you need to switch your drums around and put the snare on the other side and the hi hat and play the bass drum with your left foot." And I did that, and within a few months, I was able to to play left-handed actually easier. Really? But now, and you know, this was forty years ago. I wish mm-hmm. that I had learned to play, you know, on a right-handed kit the way Billy Cobham and Lenny White and all those guys right, play. Right, right, right. But so we were talking a little bit about feel. Uh, how do you suggest that that you really that you study that because that's kind of like the intangible. You know, it's, it, it's it, yeah. how do you get to that point? Well, you know, I'm I'm no teacher, but to me, I think the more you can absorb yourself and feel drummers like. Jeff Procaro and Steve Gadd, Rick Murata, and, you know, Dennis Chambers. I mean, there's dozens of these guys, Steve Jordan, um, guys that I think of, you know, with this great feel. And, you know, I'd put Charlie and Ringo in that as well. Sure, sure. Um, And I think if you just immerse yourself 
I think I find that happened with me that almost through osmosis, it it starts to. I mean, you've either you know you you you're either born with a great feel or you're not. I mean, in terms of like a really great feel, like Jeff Beccaro or Steve Gadd. Right. But right. but I think you can improve it by kind of just playing along to those records and just absorbing how it's supposed to feel. You know, mm-hmm. um, I to me, there are very few guys that can do both of those. I mean, there are some guys that can have a great feel, but also, you know, have blazing chops. Like a guy like Vinny can right. sit down and he can, you know, he can groove like Steve Gadd and Jeff Beccaro. Mm-hmm. But of course he has all, all the other stuff too, but it's typically, it's sort of one or the other. And, and right. I don't mean to say that groove players don't have chops, but they're not trying to play that stuff, you know? Right. I get what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, like you said, there it's either one or the other. This guy's either like this really technical guy that yeah, you know, that can play a million miles an hour, or somebody else that can. Especially if you look it back at like a lot of like the old like R and B groove yeah. drummers, you know, you're not going to hear them flying around the kit doing nope. all this crazy stuff. And not to say that they, I, you know, what I don't know if they can, but I'm going to guess that that right. they never really practice it and concentrated more on their on their groove and stuff like that. Right. Playing with a band. And you're right. That's, and that was my point too, Nick, is that I think you sort of make that, I think a lot of these older players we're talking about made a conscious decision that like I, I play in a band or I'm, I'm a studio musician that gets called to play this certain way. Um, and you know, Rick Murata, for example, or Russ Kunkel that, you know, they're not ever asked really to play drum solos. They're not, they're not hot for those kinds of gigs. You know, another drummer that I'll mention that, that has surprisingly great, um, you know, feel and grooveability is Marco Miniman. That um, I think many people see Marco as just like another one of these, you know, chops freaks like a Mike Mangini right. or one of those right. guys. But but you know, I know Marco very well. He traveled many times um, on clinic tours when I worked for Zildjian, and you know, he'd play to these recorded tracks, and he'd I'd be like, man, to a click, and he'd be right. he'd make it feel so good. And I said, how did you learn to do that? He said, I just you know, you just have to play with the click for a long time and just get used to it. And you just forget that it's there. I never had much luck playing to a click. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and his thing was like, you know, you just have to just get to a point where you're, you're not thinking about it anymore and, mm-hmm. and relax and you can have a good feel. You know? Yeah. Benny Greb's the same way. Yeah. I've heard. He is, yeah. I, and he's like, you know, he has all these blazing chops, but yeah. he has tremendous feel i mean i've seen a couple of videos i'm doing just straight groove stuff uh for a youtube video you know and it's sounds amazing yeah so i've always wanted to have both sides I, I don't know i think it's like the it's the equivalent of being like an elite athlete you know that these guys have these blazing yeah. chops that i don't i don't think that i would ever be that player so I, I never really aspired to to try to get there because i don't think that i could ever get there so you know you know, and and the fact is that, and I, and I, this is to take this is I take nothing away from all these guys with amazing chops and all this technical ability, but it's very rare that you'll get called to go on tour and to play that way. I mean, mm-hmm. the Sting is not really going to hire you to play that way. Right. He's going to hire the other Nick. You know, they can keep great time, make it feel really good that he can play with and feel comfortable and. You know. Right. 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 Yeah, I'm stating the obvious. You know all this. Sure. Stuff from, well, that's like the the. Uh, there's some audio of, of a Jeff Picaro clinic floating around a little bit and somebody asked him about drum solos and he was like, I don't think I've ever done a drum solo. And they were saying, they were asking, they were like, never, <laughs> yeah. never. And he was serious. He was like, uh, I don't, I don't think I ever have. No, <laughs> I've heard that it's from PIT. Yeah. It's classic. Yeah. It's like, yeah. 
Yeah. So it's like, if he doesn't need to do any drum solos, I don't need to either. Yeah. I guess. So after you were, uh, you know, you started studying a little bit and I'm guessing that you made your way into, into playing in bands and things yeah. like that. I started playing in a band, um, really young, actually. I mean, I started playing it when I was 13. I, I, within a year of playing the drums, you know, some, some guys in my town, uh, guitar player, bass player, we formed a little band, actually played some gigs, you know, as young teenagers. And, um, and then later from that, I joined a band in 1975 that I just reconnected, in fact, the other day on Facebook and LinkedIn with the bass player from that band who I'd lost touch with. But, you know, we were like 14, 15 years old and, right. um, and we played professional. We played high school dances and things like that, but we went on later on to play until together until 1983 and we played colleges and clubs and you know eventually did original music and um but from about two years into playing drums and and i was very fortunate that helped me improve um you know i never really went more than i i I would say probably six or eight months after starting playing drums where i wasn't playing with other musicians and that helped me immensely and i and and i think that unfortunately doesn't exist so much anymore because there are certainly people playing other instruments, but those opportunities to play gigs, for example, don't exist the way they did, you know, all those years ago. But sure. But yeah, so I mean, from from junior high, high school on, I was playing professionally, and um, and I'll just keep going. I mean, from when I get out of high school, I was going to go to Berkeley, and I actually checked out Berkeley for a little while. This was in the late seventies, and it was a different scene than it is today, and it was just kind of something that didn't end up being kind of the right situation for me. Right. And uh, I was still playing a lot. The band was still working a lot. And I ended up getting a job at a music store in Boston called EU Wurlitzer, um, mm-hmm. which is no longer there. But at the time, it was the kind of was like a miniature Manny's Music, a great spot in Boston. All the top bands um, shop there, like the Cars and Aerosmith and Jay Giles and Boston. You know, it was kind of before a lot of these bands had actual endorsements with companies so they'd come in and buy their drum heads buy their sticks right and through that job i got to know armin zildjian i got to know lenny demuzio and eventually in 1982 i met my future boss for my first job in the industry a guy named glenn thomas who was simmons electronic drums and it was just starting to happen this was the fall of 1982 and um, Glenn came into Wurlitzer to do a clinic on the SDS-5, mm-hmm. a demo, basically. And he and I hit it off. We'd bought a kit, COD, to, to, you know, the deal was, if you take this kit, I'll come in and do a demo and, you know, help okay. sell it. So Glenn comes in and we set the kit up and probably had 30, 40 people there to see it, one of which was uh, David Robinson, the drummer for the Cars. Mm-hmm. And they had a studio right across the street. And he was a good customer, and he was into all the electronic stuff back then. And, and so Glenn did a great clinic, and uh, afterward he and I went out and had a beer, and we were just kind of chatting and getting to know each other. And then the next day, David came in with his drum tech and wanted to kind of try the kit out some more, and we had it set up in the drum room. And, and I'm trying to remember some of the things Glenn showed me, and you know, we're all kind of messing with it. And... Uh, they probably hung around for an hour or so, him and his tech. He, his tech comes back a little later and says, pack it up, put it on the account, we'll take it. Nice. Yeah, so it was sold, and, and I get a phone. A funny thing was it was probably the same day or the next day I got a phone call from Glenn, who was, I think, in New York by then, 
on his little tour and he'd heard that we sold a kit. They must have registered their warranty or something. And immediately he's on the phone to sell another kit to me, <laughs> which, which, you know, was a funny thing. We laugh about that today. And, and, uh, and that began this relationship. We started selling Simmons in Boston before everybody. And fast forward three years later, I was looking to move out to LA to pursue playing professionally. And I called Glenn and said, I'm thinking of moving out to LA and I don't want to just go out there thinking I'm going to be, you know, the next Jeff Beccaro. Right. And, you know, are there any jobs available? And he basically said, look, you know, if you come out here, I'll find something for you. And I went, oh, wow, that's, that's nice to know. So yeah, I, it's, a, it's a generous offer. It was. Yeah. And like a, a month or so later, I, I made the decision that I was going to do this. And I called him again and I said, okay, I'm, I'm really serious about this. I'm going to come out there. And I just, you know, I'll understand. I just want to know what my options are. I said, no, look, I, if you, you come out here, I'll find something for you. I need some, some good people and we're growing. And so that was my first job. I moved to LA in 1985 in the summer and immediately started working at Simmons. And that just kind of, that's where my sort of professional industry career took off. I, Mm -hmm. I met, I did, I started doing, working there doing like artist relations and um, sort of, I was a sort of product specialist and I later moved into sales, but you know, initially in, in the first month or two months there, I met Vinny and I met, um, John Robinson and Jerry Brown and Danny Serafin and Chad Wackerman and, um, Greg Bissonette, modern a bunch, a bunch of nobodies. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like it was, just, it was crazy. It was like, I, you know, all these guys would come in the, the I don't know if you know LA, but yeah. um, the old place was in Calabasas, which is just on the mm-hmm. outskirts of the Valley. And, um, so all these guys lived in the Valley or in LA and they, they'd come in for one thing or another. And, and it was a great group of people too. I mean, the people that I work with there, especially Glenn, were just the greatest fun group of people. And it was maybe the most fun job I've ever had, you know, in the right. industry. And, uh, and I stayed there for a year and a few months. Um, I actually got to know Don Lombardi, who's the president and, you know, founder of DW Drums. And, and uh, through this friendship, Don called me one night when things at Simmons were kind of slowing down a little bit and the electronic thing was starting to fade. Acoustic drums are coming back strong again. And right. So what year is this around? This is 1986, 90, the fall. Of, yeah, I figured it was late 80s, early 90s maybe. Yeah. And, and Don said, um, you know, your name came up recently and I'm looking to really get serious. You know, we, we make drums, but people don't know it. We've, we've got a couple of guys playing our drums. We really want to enter the acoustic drum market. And we need somebody who can do artist relations, who can do sales. And so I went up and met with him and saw the operation, the old Newbury Park um, facility that he had. And I really liked Don immediately. I'd I'd known him a little bit before that, but um, it just really clicked. And I decided, okay, this is going to be the best move for my future. And I ended up working for Don. And and that was in October or November of 86. And then that January 87 is when he launched officially launched DW drums. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I stayed there for about three years and moved back to the East coast at the end of 1988. And it was funny. I was, I was at the NAM show, um, in January 89. So 25 years ago when the Zildjian people approached me to come to work for them. Oh, wow. And I was, I'd already moved back there anyway. And they knew that I was back in the area and you know, would I be interested in coming in to talk about some things? And I thought, well, be crazy not to, you know? Right. So, so when you moved back from LA, were you still working with DW? I was, yeah. I moved back. Uh, Don and I worked out this arrangement where I would be um, an East Coast sort of 
you know, representative East Coast office for DW, although it right. allowed me to um, – I was mainly in sales at that point, although I would go out and see artists when they came through town. But basically, it was an independent sales situ- uh, situation where I could take on other lines that didn't compete with DW. Okay. So I took on I, – I don't know. I had a couple other little – things that I was selling at the time and but it was my most of my time was focused on DW because right. it was just starting to happen at that point. I got you. Yeah. So then now you're back on the East Coast and uh and then you get approached by Zildjian. Yeah. At that NAM show and it was basically, you know, do you want to come down and, and uh do you have a resume? Yes I do. Would you be interested in coming down and, and talking and interviewing about some about a position that we have and you know, we'd rather discuss it in person kind of thing. So I said, sure. You know, and I got a phone call after the show and scheduled a, a visit down there. And I'd never been to the factory, which is funny. I mean, I grew up in Boston, but I'd never actually been to the factory. And, right. And, uh, were you playing Zildjian cymbals at the time? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I really liked what I saw, you know, and, and, uh, I liked the people there and I, and, and the job was artist relations and they said, you know, here's what's going on. Lenny's going to move more toward education and, um, you know, we want to get somebody in who, you know, maybe I, I hate to, I don't want to say younger, but just somebody who is maybe a little bit more in tune with some of these bands and, you know, or right. really just to have another sort of body there to do the work, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was my, my sort of first interview, I guess you could say. And I got a call back to come in for my second interview and that was with Armin Zildjian. And and that was really cool because I'd met Armin a couple of times, but you know we really didn't know each other. And sitting in his office, and and he's he's just being Armin, you know, as charming and as nice as could be. And and uh, I will say, at the same time, I'd been approached by um, Sabian's distributor, mm-hmm. this company called HSS, and uh, they were looking for a sales rep for the year. And my name had been thrown into the into the hat. So I got a call from the sales manager saying. You know, I'm, I'm coming up to Boston to interview people. Would you be available to interview for this job? And this was right around the same time. And I kept putting him off because I knew I had this second interview at Zildjian. <laughs> right. And I figured if they make me an offer, I'm going to take it if it's the right offer. You know. Right, right. And all the while, you know, I I kind of filled Lombardi in a little bit of what was going on because I knew I could be open with him about it. And I didn't want to leave him hanging. And I and I right. was up front with these other companies too and saying, you know. I'm with DW on the East Coast. The drums are starting to take off. I mean, I'm I'm getting a commission on what I sell, and it's, you know, I'm starting to make some good money here. So I'm 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 not going to just throw that away unless sure. it's the right situation. So I go down for my second interview with Armin, and um, and I'm sitting in his office, and Craigie Zildjian, his daughter, who later became my boss, but. She's in there. She's the person that's in charge of human resources, the HR person. So she has my resume and she's marking it up and circling things and asking all the hard questions. And Armin and I are talking about drummers and, you know, do you know this guy? Do you know that guy? You know, do you know Peter Erskine? Do you know? So Craigie um, said, well, I have have a question. I just, I look at your resume and you've moved around quite a bit. You, you know, you were here and then you moved out to California and you, worked for two places out there and now you're back out here. You know, how do we know you're not going to move along, you know, in, in, a, in a year, just leave and go work somewhere else? And I said, well, no, that's, that's a fair question. And my son was born in California and we didn't want to stay out there. We didn't want to sort of raise him out there right. because we were coming back and forth all the time to see his family. And so we decided to, you know, move back to the East Coast where we could kind of 
settle in, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so I'm explaining it, you know, that there's a reason for this. And right. uh, you're not just some guy that's just, yeah, you know, a I'm vagabond not. that's going from one place to the next. No, and, no. Right. And, and I said, you know, if it's, if, if it's the right situation, which I think it would be working for Zildjian, I, I would imagine I'd stay here for a very long time, you know. And um, so Armin just, <laughs> just kind of goes, Greggy, for crying out loud, I like this guy. Just hire him and give him whatever he wants. <laughs> <laughs> and she has this like look in her face like, oh, no. It was really funny. <laughs> when I think about it, it was, it was – and that sums up Armin. You know, he was, right. he was just a guy that would, you know – he didn't have any, you know, any apprehension at all to, to say that, what was on his mind like that, you know? Right. And how old were you at this time? I was 28. I 28. just turned 28, yeah. So I'm guessing at some point you had to make a crucial decision and you had to say, I'm either going to keep pursuing playing or I'm going to go, you know, to the ma- uh, you know, with the companies and on the manufacturing side of things. And how did you make that decision and did you struggle with it? I did. You know, that, that's a really good, and I kind of skipped over that. Probably psychologically, I, I tend to skip over that part of it. <laughs> while, while I was in California, um, you know, the first year that I was out there, I was still playing a lot and, and meeting people and trying to play with people. And, you know, if, if you've heard anything about, or maybe you've lived out there, I don't know, but it's, it's really hard. Um, there's a ton of musicians, but it's just sort of culling through all that, you know, you right. pick up a LA Weekly magazine or a Recycler magazine and, and, you know, there's there's bands looking for drummers and, you know, must have long blonde hair, must have double bass drums, must right, be right. over six feet tall. None of which, well, I could play a little bit of double bass drums, but I don't have blonde hair and I'm not over six feet tall. But No, you know, me neither. Yeah, there was a lot I'm five, of... I'm 5'7 if the humidity's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, um you know, I had to get through all that. I had to go, wow, this is really different from being in Boston where I kind of knew everybody one way or right. another. I, or I, I played with this guy who played with that guy and he got my number and said, hey, you want to come down and, you know, play with us. But um, it was a different scene and I kind of waded through it for a while and I, like everybody, you know, you get a little frustrated. But I did play with some people. I actually recorded uh, my first wife, worked for a recording studio out there and this woman was coming in to do this kind of spec demo and the guy that was producing it didn't want to use a drum machine and said, you know, would your husband want to come in and play? And, and, uh, anyway, long story short, I actually went in and like did this session there that was really fun, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that sort of kept my spirit going for a while. But when I moved over to DW and I saw the sort of, um, magnitude of what that job was and, and it was a, you know, it was a really absorbing job with nights out seeing artists and, uh, you know, just a, a real commitment to the job. And at the same time, it was when my son, my son was born in 1987, in May of 1987, and then he came along and, and I kind of, you know, made that decision almost um, seamlessly that I really have a, I have a better chance kind of being successful on this side of it. Right. And, and I, you know, the, and I looked at it like, and I, and it wasn't, it wasn't just me rationalizing it. I looked at it like, well, I'm still working in the music business. I'm not playing, but there's certainly a, uh, a healthy dose of drumming that I'm getting every day, whether it's, right. you know, a drummer coming in or it's whatever it might be, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I guess it was a, a somewhat gradual process to where I, I looked at it like, okay, you know, I could keep beating my head against the wall trying to play. And, um, and at the same time, I recognized that I certainly wasn't, 
standout uh, musician above everybody else in town that was trying to do the same gigs. You know what I mean? Right, it wasn't right. like, unless I got lucky and joined Poison on their way up, mm-hmm. then, you know, I wasn't going to really have a chance of taking Chad Wackerman's gig or this guy's gig in this other band. Right, you know? right, right. So uh, how long how long did it kind of take you to come to terms with, with what you were doing, that transition? Because I think that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah. And I think it's a lot harder if you say, okay, I'm going to abandon being a drummer and I'm going to go be an architect. I think that's a little bit more difficult, you know, than staying in the industry, but I'm sure there had to be a little bit of, you know, was there some regret leaving, you know, or not leaving, but. You know what, Nick, I really, I wouldn't say regret. I would, and to answer the question, it was probably a year. If I look, if I look back and think about it, it was probably like it, it was the, it went over the course of about a year that I, I just sort of, you know, find my, I found myself, I lived in an apartment, so I couldn't really, I still had a Simmons kit that I would play. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, you know, I found myself sort of playing less and less on my own. And, right. and you know, at times I would really miss it, but other times you'd be like, yeah, you know what, I just have time, I, I got to do this, I got to do this, got to take right. the baby here, you know. And, mm-hmm. and so it was one of those things where, um, and, and to be honest with you, as time went on, especially when I went to work for Zildjian and, um, it was probably several years later. I, I thought to myself, I'm so glad I didn't sort of keep following this dream of that I had, like into my 30s and mid 30s, only to be kind of really struggling right now in life. Where, where at right. that point, I'm like, okay, I'm I'm doing okay. You know, I'm right. I'm, I, I'm you know making a good living, and you know mm-hmm. I've got health insurance, and you know all these other things, and and you're you know, working with drums and drummers every exactly, day. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, right. I, I really, I, I'm glad I made the right choice when I did because like you said, it could have been it, really easy for me to just go, um, you know, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want right. to, I actually got a call, um, from a band when I was living in California from the East coast that didn't know I'd moved to California. And, and the guy got my number finally said, I've been trying to track you down for a couple of months and we're looking for a drummer. And they were a pretty popular band at the time. And I contemplated it for a minute. And I said, you know, I just moved to L.A. I, I, I've got a good job. But I'm like, wow, this could be it. You know, I was 24 years old at the time. Right. And uh, but I, I, you know, I just went, you know what? I can't for the for like a six or eight week tour, basically commitment. And then maybe something after that. But right. um, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Right. And, and, and again, I thought later, like, you know, it's really good that I didn't just uproot and move back. Sure. Or, tell my wife I'm, I'm going to go on the road now and you're, you're on your own out here for a couple of months, you know? Right. Especially with a baby and yeah. Right. I can see that, you know, the one thing that I think that would, would bother me in that position would be, okay, I'm working for this company and I'm going to see all these artists and kind of dealing with the fact that, man, I wanted to be the artist rather than on the other side of the, of the, cause I do artist relation stuff now. So sometimes it's like, you know, Sometimes you look at an artist and say, man, I wish I was, you know, I wish I was playing at Red Rocks tonight or yeah. you know, whatever, whatever it is. So, no, I, and maybe, maybe you still have more of that sort of flame, you know, right. burning inside of you that, that I think I was able to sort of get past that. And, uh, but I mean, there were certainly times when I'd, I'd be watching a band and it would just be more like, well, that's got to be so much fun, you know, right. like I remember I just played. Uh, about a month or so ago at my high school reunion and I got up and played with a band and, and, uh, and I hadn't played like with a band in a long time, probably a, a year or two. Right. 
and it was it was great. I mean, I they I went up and played two or three songs, and I was like getting ready to get up and leave, and the, and the guitar player said, "You want to do one more?" I'm like, "Yeah, come on, let's go," <laughs> you know. But it, it's it's amazing how quickly that all you know that sort of uh, that fire comes back, you know, right. that adrenaline. But but I, I know what you mean, and I think to me, I think that was one of my strongest suits in doing artist relations is that was is that I was able to kind of where the take separate those two hats as it were you know and and understand that my my role was maybe to advise somebody or support somebody but certainly not to try to um and not to say you would do this either but to in any way upstage them and and or or think that you know i should be doing this too you know and and i've I've seen some people you know in the business over the years who kind of haven't really lasted long in the business because they it almost they almost feel like you know I should be doing I'm better than this guy I should right. be doing that and you you know you as you know you can't ever take that position you know that no. you know Absolutely he does not. he doesn't deserve this job I should be playing in this band I'm way better than him it's like well he's in the band you're not right and it's yeah. like the guys when you're at a, you know at a football game and the guy behind you's yelling about what the coach is doing on the field and yeah. you're like if you were if you knew that much about football you'd be on the field coaching and not right. sitting behind me yelling exactly <laughs> yep exactly so. so what advice would you have for somebody that's that may be in that position now that you know that's getting you know they're in their late 20s early 30s they're still trying to maybe pursue this thing and they're they're kind of walking that line where they're like you know that maybe they just got married they had a kid or something like that and they're like wait a minute you know should i should I keep doing this or should I keep yeah. pursuing this or should I? Boy, I, I don't know that there's any one sort of set general piece of advice. I think, I think so much of it, you know, it, it involves or, or it revolves around like where you're located geographically. Like, are you in a, are you living in LA where there's, you know, possibilities or are you living in the Midwest or someplace where, you know, there are no gigs and at which point maybe you really do need to think about either a moving or going into another field. You know, I mean, um, you know, I, I, I consider myself a realist as far as that goes, you know, and and that at a point you, it's great to have a dream, you know, and have a passion. But, but like you said, I mean, you've, you've got to, at some point, you know, if, if you're having, if you're having a children or you're having a, having children, having a family, starting a family, there are certain responsibilities that, you have, you know, that you need to think about so that you're, you know, thinking about the future as it were. So I don't know, you know, I, the, the best advice I give like younger people is definitely get an education and, and, you know, be, have that passion, have your, have your, you know, be, be interested in playing an instrument. But if you can go to school for, I don't know, um, IT or, or some sort of computer technology or, or something that looks like it's a field that's, that you could you could have a you know make a living on you know fall back on right five or ten years down the road and it's really hard to say that I mean who knows what's what the future holds in five or ten sure. years but um, and I know I'm, I'm kind of um, I'm probably dancing around the question but <laughs> I, you know <laughs> it's weird I, I find myself more often than not um, sounding a little negative about the sort of future of the business. Right. Well, I think that it's, you know, not to interrupt you, but I think that it's really changed since, you know, when I've talked about this numerous times before, but about, you know, when Hal Blaine was out there cutting all these records, I mean, he had a yacht and a Rolls Royce and and all this stuff. And those, sadly, those days are gone. And that's one of the things that I try to 
do with this with this podcast and the show is to help people to be a little bit more entrepreneurial about things and maybe have you know your hands in a couple different things and not just be you know not just making all your money from gigging but maybe from gigging and doing some product specialty things and you know maybe having lessons and different yeah. things you know well exactly Nick and that, I was going to say that as well if 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 you have the ability to teach if you've you know if you have teaching credentials or you're you know you've had some sort of teaching experience and you can parlay that as you get into your whatever the age is, if it's your early mid thirties or something and, and the gigging scene is starting to dry up a little bit, uh, but you still want to stay active and playing drums and absolutely. And if you can, and there are certain people that really have that ability to do that. They can, you know, they're good teachers. They've had a, um, you know, they've had a number of students over the years and they've been able to kind of keep that going with 10, 20, 30, 40 students a week. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely a way to do it. And you, and we, you know, we hope that that continues too. That kids are going to want to take drum lessons and, mm-hmm. you know, keep playing musical instruments. But, uh, but I, yeah, all those things you're saying too. I mean, even even, and again, it's it's a big step to make this too. But so many, you know, A level artists that I know have, you know, built studios in their houses and you know do a lot of demos and do a lot of recording right. at home in their home studios, as you know, because the home the, the recording thing is really kind of dried up. It's almost right, 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 right. So if you can get some, even just doing demos, you know, just some uh, piece of that, you know, if you can right. get familiar with some producers who will throw a little bit of work your way and mm-hmm. just want you to just throw down some, some rough tracks and they can, I don't know, you can make a few bucks doing that. Why not? You know? Right. And like you said, uh, you know, a lot of these, even the A-level guys are hustling and they have oh, yeah. 15 different things going on and you know, there's, there's most of the guys are not just saying, okay, I play with, with, right. you know, big band a, and, and that's all I do. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I mean, you look at a guy like Steve Gadd and, you know, Steve is on the road, you know, 51 weeks out of the year. I mean, right. if you look at his, I mean, I know Steve, but if you just, anybody could just look at his website or his Facebook page and see he's, whether it's Eric Clapton or James Taylor or Paul Simon or the Gadabouts or um, Steve Gadden friends or any one of his, you know, his projects, mm-hmm. it's, he's, he's constantly working. I mean, and, and it's right. not like he's, you know, he, he loves to work anyway, but guys like him, you know, he, he's, he hasn't written a hit record, um, right. a hit song where there's money coming in all the time. So, and he'd be the first to tell you that, you know, it's, right. it's different for sidemen. Sure. You know? Yeah, the the publishing is where the the real money is. You know? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So to transition a little bit, so we got to the point where you were where you started at Zildjian, and uh, can you kind of walk us through how you made it from starting at Zildjian to becoming the vice president? Let's see. Well, I started there, as I said, in, in May of 1989, and at that time I was I was hired as um, artist relations manager, and. On the East Coast, and there was a there's a West Coast office, and the, there was a I had a counterpart in Los Angeles, Mike Morris, who's the West Coast guy, and you know my job was not that much different from when I was promoted to vice president, but basically the great thing about that place was I mean my first day I just hit the ground running. I mean my boss at the time said to me, you 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 know just familiar familiarize yourself with the phone system I, I you know you know what to do otherwise and it was right. just kind of a funny thing because there was no sort of real training beyond 
you know, taking a walk through the factory and, and getting some, some product training initially, but um, you just sort of hit the ground running. And by, by that, I mean artists coming through all the time, um, going out to shows to see people signing new artists, getting in touch with people, that sort of thing. And so over the years, I moved up, um, I want to say about four years after being there, I moved up to director of artist relations. So I was now in charge of it. I had a guy in the West Coast reporting into me, and, uh, and we had an office in London as well. And with that came responsibility for all the big like events like PASIC and, and uh, modern, you know, all the big festivals and sort of overseeing that and managing the budget for it and helping get the right players on these certain festivals and mm-hmm. Zilge days and things like that um, to where, you know, the, the company felt that they wanted to kind of expand that job and make it a more kind of recognized position within the company and 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 that was a really nice surprise because they had sort of hinted around about it i want to say it was not long after armin died which was 2003 right um that they were considering it and then in 2005 i was promoted to vice president which was a you know great great honor for me sure sure i i never you know and I, i tell people this and i it's not that i don't have any faith in myself but i you know when i started working there i was I was very happy with my position and of course I wanted to make more money and go further up the ladder. And when I got promoted to director, I felt like, well, this is pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm a director in a, you know, in a, in a very respected company. And the only thing above that is vice president. And I, I, I don't see that day coming unless I move over to marketing or I move over to something else, but uh, I'm very happy with where I am. And when they made that position and, and I'm, you know, they'll, That'll never happen again there. They won't ever make a person vice president of artist relations. Um, right. I, I know that. But, um, but that was a, you know, a, a thrill because I felt like I'd already sort of achieved more than I'd hoped to achieve. And then to get to that point, it was really pretty special. So. Now, do you think that that was because of obviously your work ethic and, and they believed in you as a, as a person? Um, did it have to do a lot with, with who you were signing as well? Were they, you know, were you signing a lot of guys and, and how do you get a guy that say, you know, has been playing Peisty for, for 30 years or a guy that's been playing Sabian for 30 years? How do you get them to switch? Well, I think, I think it was a, a combination of a, of a few things or many things. I should say it was the fact that at, at that point I'd been there, um, I guess close to 20 years at that point, 18 or 17 years and uh you know it it was i think they saw that i'd taken the position to a to another level the the job artist relations mm-hmm. the whole artist program and i think and i i think they felt the same way had had uh and and you know lenny demuso had had certainly handed me the keys um to a great program already so i i I was very lucky to come into a situation where there was already this great program in place and i was able to sort of build on it and yeah, I think it was just a result of relationships that I'd fostered with with artists that um, had been with the company already for a long time, but maybe the relationship got stronger. Maybe somebody like a Steve Gadd or, um, you know, he, he's a good example. I mean, people like Charlie Watts, star, never had a relationship with Zildjian until I worked there. I mean, I, w- I was the one that sort of, you know, Ringo always played Zildjian, but he ne- he never endorsed it. He was never... You know, he really an artist. An artist. He was really only ever an endorser of Ludwig and later Promark. 
but I changed that on the drumsticks. We'll get to that later. But uh, <laughs> but well, we're th- we're well, we're there. How, how did that happen? No, but but um, no. I mean, it, I think it was a recognition of a lot of these things, and and uh, and that was what made it really nice. Was it wasn't something that I was pushing for and or you know threatening to go work somewhere else if they didn't do this. It was just like here we're going to do this because we we like what you're doing and. And, you know, there's a level of professionalism that's there and, and all that. So, and, and to me, that's the best way, you know, when, when it, it's something that's, you know, when you're not looking for it and it just, it's there, it's, it's mm-hmm. the most kind of organic way to do it. Um, and, you know, for me, what, what I tried to do at that time, when a lot of the artists heard about it, they were like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I can't talk to you anymore? And I said, no, right. no, not at all. You know, it's, it's. It's, it means I'm making more money, which is good. Right. And I'm, you know, at this other level now, but I'm, you know, I'm still here for you. So don't feel, and it's funny because certain, certain guys would say, Hey, I know this isn't really your thing anymore, but right. I was like, no, it is my thing. It's okay. Sure. 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 You, you can call me about this. Don't worry. It's still accessible. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and you know, in terms of signing artists, honestly, you know, I, I, I'm the sort of person that, um, Sure, there were guys that we went after, that I went after to sign, but um, I always tried to be respectful of relationships they had with other companies. And, right. um, and you know, it's, it's a pretty, as you, I'm sure, know, it's a, it's a small little industry, somewhat incestuous, and we all know mm-hmm. each other. Right. Um, one of the best things, I think, that happened when I left Zildjian a year ago was I got emails from all my competitors who I, I had, I felt I had a good relationship with anyway, but they're still right. your competitors. And they said some of the nicest things that, that they were probably glad to see me go. So I'm not kidding myself, but, <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, it was, they were some of the nicest comments from, uh, from people that, you know, sometimes there was an adversarial situation where sure. we're fighting over the same guy or this, you know, this is happening and we're sorting that out. But, um, but I like to think that I, I was, pretty fair with people and I would, I would respect relationships and not pressure someone, um, to leave a company unless they really wanted to do that. Right. Unless they were looking to leave. Yeah. And, in, and right. I would tell you in the vast majority, the vast majority of those situations, um, it was someone that had kind of put it out there that they might be interested in making a move. And, um, and you know, usually when that happens, it's, they're not just talking to me, they're talking to maybe two other symbol companies, maybe three other symbol companies. So right. then it's on me to decide, you know, do we want this guy and what are we willing to do? And, you know, and there isn't a lot you can do these days. That's, that's right. just it too. You know, it's the days of, um, you know, promising a lot of clinics to somebody or promising a lot of advertising. There's just so much you can do. And I, and, and my thing was always being honest and upfront with people and right. managing those expectations. And, and look, this is, I'm going to be honest. This is as much as I can do. I'll, if, if I can do more, I will. But I, I'm not going to bring you in under false pretenses and say, "I'll do these ten things for you and right. and, and do three of them." You know, more of the under promise over deliver principle. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and I, I, I think that that always works. Mm-hmm. Now, you you had mentioned about the the industry how it's it is a bit it is a bit uh, incestuous and everyone knows each other, uh, which is which I you know the deeper and deeper I get into the industry, it's like. Everyone does know each other, which is great. What do you think is a big misconception of people that are outside of the industry about how the, about the inner workings of the industry? Um, 
Well, let's see. I'd say a misconception would be, um, I think, what people think all the companies um, have to, to work with financially and how much money they, they can spend on supporting their artists or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A, a general sort of misconception on how much free gear is, is given to people and, and how many, you know, and what that even means, you know, when, right. when you sign up as an artist. Um, and one of the things that, that I, you know, a simple thing like the phrase, you know, I'm endorsed by Zildjian, I'm endorsed by this company. The reality is you, the artist, endorse that company. The company doesn't right. endorse you. And I think when people stop and think about what that really means, it means that they're the ones that are, the artist is the one that's kind of giving their name and they're, they're giving their um, their their endorsement to the company they're they're saying this is what i want to play so i guess i'm i get overly technical about this and and if i were someone look on the outside looking in i would think okay well then that means that the company really doesn't have as much responsibility as the artist does in terms of what they're expected to bring to the party right um, and and that's maybe years of it, of being on the other side where i say that but what I'm getting at is the onus really is on the artist to demonstrate what they can do to promote that product. It's sure. not, and it's certainly a two way street, Nick. I mean, you know, you mm-hmm. work in the business, so you know that there's certainly support that comes with it from the company. But at the end of the day, you know, artists need to be thinking about what am I, you know, am I really giving value? And and I think if a lot of these kind of younger players coming up stopped and thought about that, they'd realize, well, maybe I'm really not ready to approach symbol company, right? You know, A or drum company B about an endorsement. Maybe I'm really not. I don't really have what they need because mm-hmm. uh, it's it's tough when somebody asks you that question. I had somebody ask me the other night at a Simon Phillips clinic uh, show. Rather, he was doing a show here in Boston, and, and a, an old friend that I've known for years, who knows that I don't work for Zildjian anymore, but still asked me, <laughs> "What does it take to get an endorsement?" <laughs> and uh, you know, I said, "Well, you know, you've." you've got to be able to influence people. I mean, it's the, the simplest right. thing is, you know, you've, it's got to make sense to the company to have you there that you're going to reach out to people and, and affect their business in some way, mm-hmm. you know, help sell their products. I mean, that's really what it is. And I use this really crude analogy of, of, you know, I, I, I go out to all these running stores and buy all this Nike stuff at full retail. Right. And, you know, I'm running down the street with my Nike running shoes and my thermal top with that swoosh right there. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm not on the phone to Nike saying, hey, can you hook me up with an endorsement? Because, you know, right. 30 people saw me today. <laughs> so right, I, right. You know, <laughs> they'd hang up on me. I'd hang up on me. Right. <laughs> it reminds me of two things. Uh, one is a quote from Jim Rohn, and he said that you get, you get back whatever value you bring to the marketplace. Yeah. You know, so if you're not bringing a bunch of value for the company, they're not going to be shipping you crates of symbols, yeah. you know? And the other, when I signed with, uh, with Aquarian, you know, I, Chris Brady and I have a, have a good relationship and he's always told me, you know, Roy Burns always says, we can't make you a star, you know, just because yeah. you signed with this company, we're not going to make you a star, but how, whatever level you want to get to, we'll, we'll be, you know, we'll be beside you to, to help you. Right. But we're not going to be the, you have to go, be the one that goes out and yeah. becomes the star, you know? A lot of people think that they, sorry, not to cut you off. A lot of people think, you know, they, they're going to sign an endorsement and, and then they're going to be the next, you know, the next Steve Gadd or the next Chad Wackerman or something. Roy Burns. I mean, and God bless Roy because, you know, he's a guy that, 
you know, talk about a, a, a legend who, I, I, to me, that, that carries so much weight when someone like Roy or, you know, when Armin was still with us or even somebody like, you know, Vic Firth that's still with us can, can say these things because, you know, that's, you know, Vic, legendary, you know, uh, timpanist with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I mean, 50 years with the orchestra. He, he made himself a star, you know, Roy right. Burns made himself a star. I mean, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't on the back of Roger's drums. It was Roy right. Burns himself, you know, and, and, uh, and then that's exactly right. And, that, and that's Lenny DiMuzio used to say that all the time too. We'd, we'd be comparing notes and he'd say, geez, Johnny, you know, what do they think? We're a promotions company. They think we're just, a, <laughs> we, they think we're here to promote their career, you know, and, and we'd laugh about, and I mean, I think everybody, Chris Brady too, probably, you know, laughs about all this stuff we all do. And, 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 but it's, but it's no laughing matter. Let me tell you. Right, right, right. You know, but it, but it's, you know, I think that's, it's never going to change. I mean, it's always going to go on. I think at some level where people are going to think there's some, some magical thing that companies can do. And there certainly are things that companies can do in the way of maybe getting an unknown guy out on a clinic tour. And, and maybe that's just enough to sort of push his name out there and, and right. more people find out. But um, a really good friend of mine, great drummer, I'm sure you've heard of Dave Maddox. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many years ago, when he was still living in London, he was visiting Zildjian. We had lunch one day, and we were talking about, you know, endorsements and advertising and all that stuff. And he said to me, "This, you know, is the funniest thing, and I've, I've stolen it from him, but I always give him credit." And he said, "Well, you know, it's not like Sting's thumbing through Modern Modern Drummer magazine and seeing an advert of this guy and saying, yep, that's the guy I want to have in my band.' <laughs> right. You know, and that sums it up perfectly. It right. really does. It's just." But there's this misconception about that, that it's the company is going to help make you a star. But really, right. when I was at Zildjian, I used to be very honest with people and say, you know, what we're hoping for is that what Roy said, you know, you become a star and we'll be right there with you and you'll help us sell more symbols. And then we can move your level up in terms of what we can do for you. But right. ideally, you know, we're hoping we signed you up with the hopes that you're going to be a big guy that's going to help sell some product because right. selling product is what allows us to have an artist relations program without selling symbols. We right. can't have this program. Then we can't have it. Yeah. So you're saying that the emails that say, Hey, I've never tried your symbols, but I would really like an endorsement. Can you send me some free ones? Those don't work. Those don't work. Yeah. Those don't work. <laughs> it cracks me up that, you know, a lot of people, it's like, Oh, I've never, I've never tried these before. I would love to, I'd love to check them out. Can you send me some, you know, it's, I, this I isn't know. UNICEF. So I, I you know. know, I know it's, I, and I think I think just almost by attrition or something, I don't know, I think just because of what's happened over the last five years with the economy, I think there's less and less of that. I think people are, seems to be anyway, I mean, there's certainly still an element of it, but I think people are understanding more now that there isn't a lot of money out there for companies to just right. kind of throw around and, um, you know, take a chance on somebody the way that we used to. Right. You know? Right. So... You were after Zildjian, or not after Zildjian, but while you were at Zildjian, you came to a point where you thought it was a good time for you to step down as vice president? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you the truth. I mean, it, it's it's hard for me. I can only get into so much of this, but um, I still I still loved doing that job every day, right up until the last day that I did it. Right. Um, the job itself. It's just kind of what things had sort of become uh, 
not just at Zildjian, but in the industry, but about at Zildjian too. I mean, things had changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I couldn't really do my best work anymore in the sort of in, in the environment and in the situation I was in. And, and you know, I, 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 I tell people, you know, I worked there for just shy of 24 years. And for 23 years and probably, you know, eight months, nine months, right up until the last few months before I left there, you know, I still got up every day, went to work, loving it. And it wasn't as though I didn't love it the last few months I was there. My point being that once I made that decision that I was going to leave, you know, I had to sort of reconcile that with myself. But, um, but you know, things were changing and it got to a point where I felt like, you know, I, it's never going to be the way that I remember it being in right. the good old days. Was that because of the, of the merger or was that? No, no, it wasn't. No. It wasn't because of the merger. It was, I think it was just, I think, a feeling that the economy is different now. Business is different. We have to look at things differently. And, right. Um, and that, that merger is all, I mean, that's all public knowledge, right? Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. yeah that's okay. Vic Firth and Zildjian? Yeah. Yeah, that was t- three years. Four well, years. I know it's been a while, but nobody really talks about it. So, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, they're part of Zildjian now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's. It's more. I think it's more a case of just knowing that, you know. And again, I hate to say this because it it sounds so sort of bleak, but I, those days of kind of really having fun and and a sort of looseness of of what the industry was like, and and even Zildjian, you know, they're it's it, they don't really exist anymore. You know, it's, right. it's it's a it's a more of a sort of corporate mentality, and uh, and that's why when I left Zildjian, I I kind of made the decision. I mean, I said I'm. Well, I didn't really say I was retiring. They said I was retiring. But, you know, I said I'm not going to go work for another company and basically do the same thing that I'm doing now because right. I probably wouldn't get as paid, paid as much. Um, but, he, but it wasn't even about that. It was really more like I don't want to just, you know, be in the same situation that I'm in now. You right. know, I'd rather just take a step back and, and see what happens. So that's what I've done. And, I, and I've, you know, I haven't lost touch by any means with, sure. with people in the industry. And I've actually been doing some consulting in the last few months, which has kind of kept my toe in the water a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, you'd mentioned that you didn't feel like you could do your, your best work anymore while you were resilient. So what do you think was your, your best work? What's your, what's your biggest achievement that you're proud of while being at Zildjian? Well, um, boy, biggest achievement. There, there are some a few big things I think that I don't know that I could say just one that's my very best or favorite, but I, I mentioned earlier just kind of bringing some people closer to the company or even into the company, like a guy like Charlie, who, um, and that's he's a personal hero of mine, you know, so mm-hmm. that was a huge thing. But, um, you know, Charlie is somebody that, that never really, um, he's like old school to where he never really had any sort of relationships with any companies. Right. So I really had to sort of reach out to him, break through and nurture that to the point where, you know, he felt comfortable and accepted me and, and happened faster than I would have thought it would. And, and we became really good friends, you know, and, mm-hmm. and to this day. So, I mean, I think of that as a, as a great accomplishment. And um, I mentioned signing Ringo. That, that happened literally at the very end of my time at Zildjian. It was a, almost a two-year ordeal, you know, process really? of having him try sticks and him liking them. And then we wouldn't, you know, he'd, he'd be off the grid for a while because he'd be off the road and he'd be doing other things and fundraising. Right. And, but when it finally came down to it, 
when he finally signed the contract and said he was on board playing our sticks, it was a huge thing for me to, to think that, you know, you know, again, Ringo was somebody that really didn't have any sort of relationship with Zildjian before that right, right. or before my time, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, but, but I'll, I'm jumping around a little bit. Let's see. We did all these Steve Gad tours, Mission from Gad tours. Right. And that started in 2005. And we did three in the U.S. and we did two in Europe. And I'll always think of those as like some of my best uh, moments. They were a lot of fun and they were great accomplishments because of what they were and and the the undertaking of what it was with, you know, getting a tour bus on the road and and you know, basically almost like promoting a tour with venues and, and, uh, you know, distributors in each country in some cases and coordinating everything. And mm-hmm. yeah. Um, we did two of these, uh, American drummers or Zildjian drummers achievement awards events. Well, we did three total, but two that I ran, one was a tribute to Steve Gadd in 2003 and we had James Taylor and Paul Simon there. And Vinny came and played, and, and Rick Murata, and this all stuff. Awesome. And, and that awesome. was, yeah, Bill Cosby was the MC. And then five years later in 2008, we did a tribute to Ginger Baker in London. And Jack Bruce came and played, and we had Simon and Keith Carlock and Gary Husband and Steve White. Um, Charlie Watts came and presented the award to Ginger on stage, which is amazing. So That's awesome. A, yeah, that was a, a great accomplishment. Um, I got this award in 2008, my um, Percussive Arts Society President's Award. Awesome. Which is, a you know, that's a great honor. I, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So now, I mean, you're still a young guy. So now that you're, you're retired, what's next? I don't know. You know, people keep asking me that. I, I, I feel like I, I must be really boring because I never have a, an answer. Um, <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I'm happy. I know you started blogging. I I saw that you yeah. actually. It's funny. I I was uh like the the modern drummer blog that they posted about you. Yes, mine's on. Mine was at one point we were on the same page. Oh, I'll have to check yours out. I, so I was like, I'm reading through mine, and I look over and I saw yours, and I was like, oh, I mean, it was totally. It started as a self serving thing. I just wanted to. Re- I wanted to read mine because uh, Adam told me they posted. So I check it out, and then I look at yours, and I was like, oh, great. So we, I guess. I don't know if we were added around the same time or, or, or what happened, but so it was cool. I got to check yours out while I was on there. So, well, thanks. And I'll check yours out too. And I'm, you're probably much better than I am at it. I, I I'm like weeks and weeks behind now. And for a little while I was doing one every week or a couple of weeks. And, um, it, you know, it takes a minute to sit down there and put it all together. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I actually, you know, people wonder what I'm doing. I mean, I, I, I do stay busy. And as I said, I've been doing some consulting lately and that's kept me pretty busy. So consulting for, for companies to help with their artist relations stuff or? Yeah. And in, in the yeah. industry, yep. To help with okay, artist relations and just sort of general stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to actually go out to Nam in a couple of weeks and I don't know if you're going to be there, but I'm going to. I will. I'm leaving Monday actually. I'm going out for, I'll be in LA for two weeks. So I can't wait because it's, it's cold and right now it's kind of like snowing and raining here in New York today. So I can't wait. To, I'll be gone for 25 days in warm weather climates. Wow. Good for so, you. So yeah, I can't wait. I'm excited about it. I'm only going to be gone, I think about four days, but my wife was going to come with me and she doesn't want to go to the NAMM show. So I'm going to make my trip shorter and just go by myself. And, mm-hmm. but, um, I was going to say that, um, yeah, I mean, as far as the future, I, I, I've had some companies approach me and, 
Uh, and I, I've basically left the door open, I guess you could say. And, and this is where it gets a little weird because I think a lot of people, and maybe it's partly my fault because I, I, I might have implied this. I don't think I had, I did, or maybe I did. Um, but I've left the door open that if, if something interesting came along that was, that I seemed like it could be fun and interesting, uh, in the business, I would consider it, you know, and mm-hmm. I would consider it, whether it be consulting or whether it be, um, you know, working from home, I, I, I will never work in an office again. I will never right. put myself in that situation where I'm going into a corporate environment and every day I just won't do mm-hmm. that. But, and, and, you know, and, and I'm, I don't mean to sound all full of myself, but I'm lucky to be in a situation where I can, you know, I can not have to worry about that right now anyway. And, right. Well, I don't, I don't have the storied career that, that you do. And I've already said that I've never worked in an office. I, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, you know what? And it's, it's for some people and it's not for others. Right. And, you know, God bless you. If you, I, I almost wish that I could do that. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I just, I, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to handle it. So. Well, you know what I find too, Nick, is that I, I did it for a long time and I enjoyed it for a long time. Um, and, you know, it's just, I, I, just some personnel things. Um, at Zildjian sort of, you know, made me realize that I, I couldn't do my best work there anymore. Um, but it's funny how now being away from it for a year, I realized that I, I definitely couldn't go back to it. You know, it's like right. once, once you've had a taste as you have, you know, you've, mm-hmm. you realize that, you know, you, you can't do that. And I know I can't do it. So, I mean, a couple of people have expressed interest and, in, and in, I'm, I'm probably going to meet with a couple of people at the NAMM show to see what's what's shaken. But, mm-hmm. um, the great thing is I'm not, I'm not really looking for anything. So right. it's kind of, and, it, and that's a good position to be in. Yeah. You know, that you don't have to, you don't have to do something that you don't want to do. But like you said, if something interesting comes up, okay, maybe yeah. I'll, I'll look into it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So there, for people that are coming up now that are, you know, like we said before, maybe in high school or in college or want to get into the business on one end or the other, uh, what type of knowledge can you impart to someone or give if you had advice to give? Um, you know, it's funny. I would say that at the very basic level, you have to be, a, you know, you have to be a nice person, <laughs> you know, if, right. in terms of artist relations. I think that and I'm, I apologize for interrupting you. No, but it's OK. The the more the deeper and deeper and deeper that I've gotten into the industry over the years, uh, I've realized that everybody is genuinely nice for the most part. I mean, the yeah. majority of the people are just really great human beings, which is a a really nice you know a, a really nice uh, thing to find. Yeah, I, I agree. I, the vast majority and people that when I first came up almost thirty years ago now, there were people. There's still a handful of people still working in the business that. You know, it's like you knew who they were, and they were you were almost intimidated by, <clears throat> excuse me, the fact that oh, it's this person or it's that person, and there's nothing more refreshing than meeting that person and realizing they're a really nice person, right? And, and you you for whatever reason you had it in your head that you know they must not be nice because they're I, I don't know why, but no, I, I totally agree with you. You know what I mean? Or maybe you heard something about that person, but but to me it, that was the most refreshing thing is all these people that. We're willing to help you and and immediately befriend you, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> excuse me, but I would say that if you truly want to work in the business and have longevity, you know, stay in it more or less, you know, as a lifer like I did. Um, yeah, then you've you, you've got to be a you know. And if you're not a nice person, either change or get you know get used to the fact that people aren't going to really want to have you around for a long time, right? 
Right. And and there are I will say there there's not many, but there are a couple of people who, you know, have a have a funny side to them who've managed to kind of stay in it for a while. But uh, but by and large, I, that's what I would say is that you you have to have a personality that lends itself, especially in artist relations, to getting along well with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, for me, it was a natural thing, and I, and I've seen other people that that don't understand that. And it doesn't come natural in terms of being able to, for example, diffuse a situation, being in a, right. being in a situation where, uh, you could be, and this has happened to me where you're, you're with two different artists, um, who maybe don't get along well and mm-hmm. you don't think of those things too often, but how do you, how do you deal with that when you're literally at a dinner and you're trying to, sort of diffuse a situation where there's a vibe between these two guys that, that aren't great friends, but right. you're close to both of those guys in your own way. Mm-hmm. So that ability to, you know, make the best of that situation and at least try to diffuse anything that could be, I mean, maybe that's not even a great example, but. but and it puts you in a, in a bit of a precarious situation okay. because, you know, you're in the middle and I'm sure one, guy A is, oh, you're going to, you're talking to him and the other yeah. guy's saying the same thing and yeah. or you know, it can be a little bit awkward literally whispering in your ear, um, this guy's so full of shit, you know, it's like, oh, right. <laughs> here we go. you know, yeah. And I'd be, you know, and, and you, you have to hope that you have a good enough relationship with both guys to where you could say to the guy who's saying that, all right, settle down, like, you know, right. settle down, use a, use a, a line from stripes, you know, settle down, Francis. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, those kinds of, where, where he'll then, you know, you can make it, funny he'll laugh and go okay all right sorry mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. or you know i'm gonna make you pay for your dinner if you don't knock this off you know and you just right. kind of lighten that moment but um to me it was always i found it easier and easier as i did the job to stay a couple of steps ahead of whatever the situation was and that's what i was always trying to do and i and it came as i said it came natural to where i wasn't even aware of doing that and when i would see other people even people that worked for me my own department get into a situation where they get into some sort of trouble. And I'd say, why didn't you know that if you did this, this was going to happen? Right. I, I guess I didn't think about that. It's like, well, you need to think about that. You need sure. to be thinking about all that stuff. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to do this for this guy and you know, he's going to tell that guy, then either don't do it for him or do it for both guys. Right. You know, I mean, you right. just, you have to be thinking of that stuff all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we live in a, in a world of, you know, favored nations. I mean, it's, it's, People talk to each other, and and I'm not saying that you have to do everything the same for everybody, but you know, there's certainly that level of of activity out there where people do talk to each other, and and they hear about things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and one question: what's a what's a mistake that you've made that that you really that you learned from, and if you could go back, you would you would change it? Oh boy. Um, I know I made mistakes. I just can't remember them. <laughs> I'm sure I did. <laughs> Let me think about that one. Um, let's see. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, there are probably, probably a couple of people along the way that I didn't sign that I should have. Um, so I would consider that. I mean, Stanton Moore approached me way, way back. And we started, and we're good friends to this day. This was probably maybe close to 20 years ago. And we didn't have the K Constantinople line ready to go. And I I think, so I think in my own defense, I think when we opened up our discussions, I feel like that 
he opted to go with somebody else because we didn't really have the product that he wanted at that time. Right. So I don't know. I was going to say not signing Stanton more, but I, but in all honesty, I don't know that I could have signed him really at that right. point. I think Stanton's a, you know, uh, enough of a player, obviously that he would, he wouldn't settle for something that wasn't what he wanted right. at that, at that right. time. But let me think if I can come up with something. I mean, I, I regret, um, a couple of situations where, um, I won't mention names because, again, you know, as you get older in life, you, you, you move on. And, and I like to think I don't have any enemies in this industry, right. even, even people that have left Zildjian or that I've asked to leave Zildjian. Um, but there's one guy in particular that had some problems. And, um, you know, and this happens with a lot of companies where he was selling his symbols and, and then calling up, ordering more symbols, saying they were stolen, and then he'd sell those, and then say, "Oh, these got stolen, or I left them at the airport, or the bag got, you know." Right. And finally, had to just say, "Look, we're done," you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I, I sometimes think, like, you know, could I've handled that differently? Could I've given him another chance, or said, um, "I mean, he, you know, you're gonna have to pay for these symbols, or whatever." I don't know. Right. Maybe that's not a good example either. Um, so what was he? Was he just hard up for cash, or just wanted some extra money? Or yeah, it was it was a it was a habit that he had uh, had to deal with, and, and he, I got you. he doesn't have it anymore, which is good. Good. Um, and it's it's probably you know nobody that anybody knows anyway. But I won't. Right. Um, I'm just trying to think of. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, really, I I like to think that. I, I never had anything really come back and bite me bad that I right. remember, you know? Right. Well, that's a good position to be in though. You yeah. Know, if you, if you've made the right decisions. And I think that if you, you know, if you make decisions from your heart and, and not think of it as in a, in a monetary way or, right. or things like that, then, then things are going to go the right way. You know, usually it does Nick. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, for me it became, you know, I guess you could say the, the later years, it became more difficult because, well, I wouldn't say more difficult, but I wasn't able to do as much for people as I had been able to do before. And I, you know, right. and I wanted to keep doing more for people, uh, whether it was getting them on a festival or, you know, getting out on a clinic tour or whatever mm. the case may be. Um, it just became more difficult. And, and I found myself kind of being in a situation where, you know, I, it was... I was, ha- you know, I, I'm responsible for the budget. I'm responsible, you know, financially for certain things, and and saying no more often than yes. Right. And you know, I mean, I it, it I started thinking, geez, this is, and even the people that work for me were were like, can we do this? Can we do this? I'm like, well, no, we can't do that. We, you know. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, and again, it's not just Zildjian. I think it's a lot of companies are in that situation where they're just watching every every expense and everything and. Um, you know, it's, it, it, and that kind of comes back to what I said earlier, which is it all kind of led me to feeling that I, you know, I really couldn't do my best work and it was probably just best for me to, rather than just complain and be a grouch about it, right? just move on, you know, yeah, sure. in the sunset. Sure. So, John, we've learned a lot about you today, uh, and I, I, I really appreciate you sitting down and, and taking the time to chat with me. If people want to learn more about you, uh, where can they go? Well, they could go to my blog, which is 
wordpress.johndechristopher.com. Okay. And, and I'll put this stuff in the, uh, in the show notes. It'll be, it'll be uh, drummersresource.com forward slash session 14, I believe. Right. So, oh, no. Actually, you're, you'll be session 15. 15. Even yeah. better. That's well, so, one better than 14. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? In, in typical Johnny D fashion, I gave you the wrong address for my blog. That's how often I'm on my blog. It's oh, it's johndechristopher.wordpress.com, right? Thank you, Nick. Yes, yeah. it is. You know what? I had it. I I just I had it written down here as as we were talking. I started to write it down, and I said, and I knew that you were giving it to me wrong, but I was like, he probably knows better than I. No, yeah. I I, as I'm saying it, I'm looking. I went over to the WordPress site. I'm like, okay, I've just given the wrong to all those listeners. (laughs) But yeah, I know you'll give them the right address. Yeah, yeah. It'll. I'll put everything in the show notes. You know, great. And for anybody that's listening, that if they go on that blog, they'll see there there are, you know, some some blogs going back to like March of 2013. So there's definitely some stuff to read. I just need to be a little bit more current. So uh, awesome. Yeah. But, but I thank you. And, and uh, you know, I, I hope this is, I hope whatever information people take away is valuable. And, and, you know, I mean, people can communicate with me on Facebook. I actually have a, a separate page. I've reached all my, my maximum friends on Facebook, which I guess is a, one of those, um, you know, great honors we all achieve on Facebook. Right. But I, I, I think I just got, I think I got in under the wire. Oh, I think good, I, good. I think I just, I think that I just slid underneath the, uh, <laughs> I think I, I was number 4,999 maybe. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I do have another page. It's called Johnny D's. I'll tell you right now, drummer and industry friends. Music industry friends, Johnny D's drummer and music industry friends. And so, you know, you, you can like that page and then I can connect with people there. Awesome. Awesome. So, oh, yeah, I got it. I think you sent me a, yeah, I think you sent an me an invite to that one. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll put that in the show notes to let people check that out. Cause I know that you always, you always put some great photos, especially I always love your throwback photos. Oh, uh, well, yeah, there's always some, you always throw up some, uh, some cool pics. So, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks. absolutely. And John, thank you so much for doing this. I I, I really do appreciate it, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you. My pleasure, Nick. I look forward to seeing you at NAMM. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, man. All right, thanks. Yep. So there you have it, the one and only John DeChristopher, and you can check him out if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 15. I have in there the show notes. I have all of uh, John's contact information if you would like to get at him on Twitter or uh, shoot him an email or check out his blog or anything. All the notes are in there, drummersresource.com forward slash session 15. Be sure to visit drummersresource.com or check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. And if you could, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating. That would be so great. Uh, I, would, I would definitely appreciate if you could rate the podcast or leave me a comment. Let me know what you like, what you don't like anything like that. So do that on iTunes, if you please. And if you want to get at me directly, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Nick underscore Ruffini, R-U-F-F-I-N-I. And until then, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate it. And next week we have Eric Hernandez from Bruno Mars. So that should be a great interview. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Peace.